It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Bill Dwyer is the president and chief executive officer of Helping Hand Center in Chicago. Bill has over 20 years of experience with children and adult nonprofit organizations and holds a master's degree in counseling with a concentration on marriage and family. He also holds many leadership and management certifications. Bill's best recognized in his field as being forward thinking with his vision, empowering the people around him to reach their fullest potential, and maintaining the respect and dignity of the people he serves. Bill Dwyer, welcome into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brent. It's great to be here. Oh, great to have you here. And after our technical difficulties, <laughs> it'll be a memory uh, with regards to putting this podcast together. But I'm so glad that uh, we could uh, get together and be our first CEO from a nonprofit. Thank and, you. And uh, very excited about that. And Bill, we kind of like to start with the early years. And maybe you can just tell me a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, you know, what your early family life was like. Sure. Um, I was born in South Chicago, and uh, my parents uh, moved quite a bit because they both were more executive kind of people, and they were working on their career. Um, but I spent quite a bit of time in in Chicago, and um, then we moved into. Uh, I have a sister and a brother. Right, right. I'm sorry, I don't have a brother. <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> I don't That's know why right. I said that. You wish you had a brother. I wish I had a brother. Yeah, I wish I had a brother. Sister, I have a sister. Is, sister is younger or older? She's four years younger. Four years younger. Okay, so you're the yeah. big brother, right? I'm the big brother, and she yeah. lives in Los Angeles right now. Oh, nice. She's out by me. I'm out in Santa Barbara today, and I know we're recording you in Chicago. Tell me about your parents. Uh, educated, it sounds like uh, professionals, right? What, what was Correct. their background? Um, both of my parents are educated. Uh, my father was an executive uh, marketing field, oh, right. and my mother was a an accountant CFO. Interesting. Um, they're wow. both retired now. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were very disappointed that I went into nonprofit. Gosh, yeah. Well, that's that's <laughs> taking a different path. What kind of an influence did they have on you growing up? Was was business a big part of you know what you heard at the dinner table, or you know encouragement with regards to your career? Yeah. A hundred percent. Going to college was something that you were just going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Was that assumed for both you and your sister? 
It was. Yeah. Um, my sister's more rebellious than I am and, um, <laughs> and actually was quite smarter than I was. And uh, she chose not to. Okay. And, and okay. that's why she moved off to L.A. and ah. pursue uh, Entertainment acting career. and writing yeah. and all those yeah. kind of yeah. things. Yeah, the trucks, those types, right? And, cool. uh, but my, my focus was you're, you're going to get a career. Um, Interesting, yeah. My struggle at I, I, it, school was difficult for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm Were you dysle- a good student, Bill, or, or no. average? What was your... I, I yeah. have dyslexia, and nobody knew what dyslexia was of when, course. Yeah, that when I was yeah. younger going through school. So I was lazy and um, difficult. Perceived to be. Perceived That's to right. be. Yeah. Perceived, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. right. And so I, I worked really hard, and it wasn't until um, about eighth grade, a teacher brought it up to my mother saying he may had this thing that people are talking about that this dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. And once we got a handle on that, um, school got a lot easier for me. College was imagine. real yeah. easy. Um, I read a lot right now. Um, I wouldn't give up being dyslexic for anything in the world. Um, well, you know, it's funny you say that. You're probably the second or third CEO, and we've done over 50 of these, that has dyslexia or ADHD. Oh, wow. And, you know, there's been some studies about this, and if you haven't seen them, you should look it up. There is really a high proportion of folks that have, you know, been able to achieve that level by overcoming, um, you know, that uh, we don't want to call it a, a, a disability. Learning differently, right? Just right. as we'll talk about a little Later, bit. Yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, one of my close friends, Paul Orfala, who is the Kinko's chairman, the one that started oh. that, you know, copy machine up, sold it many years ago to FedEx. But, you know, he was always very vocal about the fact that he, you know, couldn't read, you know, was kind of perceived as lazy, had the ADHD. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that if you do overcome it, you can really achieve great things. And it sounds like you've been on that path. Yeah. Once you learn you know, how your eyes and how mind learn. works, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can work through it. That's awesome. Any other early influencers in your life other than your mom and dad? Well, I, I would say my grandmother was probably awesome. my biggest influencer. Um, Did she live my, nearby? She, uh, not far. Yeah. Um, you had to drive to go see her. Right. But right. I spent, because both my parents worked a lot. Um, yeah. Spent a lot of she, time there. She yeah. raised me for a lot of time you know i would go home babysitting late at night after and, school yeah, yeah oh yeah and yeah. my grandmother was an actuary oh cool and she graduated college wow that's awesome is, yeah, yeah back in the 30s or so maybe you got 30s it. or 40s yeah fantastic and, and let me husband, guess she was the mother of your mother right? you got it <laughs> <laughs> you, yes. that strain seemed didn't go too far right Apple no far, far and, from the tree yeah and that's it, it, my mother taught me how to be accurate my mm. father taught me how to be uh, respectful and awesome. connecting with people. But yeah, my grandmother yeah. taught me how to care about people in a very mm. different way, which is unusual for an actuary. Um, but she she taught me about different races and different people with abilities and volunteering. And we was we would together do a lot of those things. And um, she's with me all the time. 
Mm, that's awesome. You know, my maternal grandmother had a big influence on me. I was the youngest of three, and so she took care of us a lot, my and my older brothers. And she was a very uh, avid Christian. She was about five foot nothing, Dutch immigrant. <laughs> and she used to live in Bellflower, California, which is probably not a place she, we would let her live today. But back in the day, you know, she would walk to her church and teach Sunday school. Right. And she'd go by these bars, and people would come out drunk, and she'd proselytize to them. And, <laughs> you know, she was absolutely fearless. And uh, gosh, I just really identify with, um, you know, that level of grandmotherly support and love. That's, that's terrific. Um, what about outside of class, uh, Bill, any sports, music, theater, anything that you pursued that uh, was of interest to you um, during those, you know, elementary, high school, junior high years? I was involved in sports and always was doing something around the neighborhood that was, you know, softball, baseball, football. Awesome. Um, when I got into organized sports, I was in uh, soccer for many years. Oh, okay. Um, that was I early on, right? It wasn't as oh, big a sport. No, it wasn't. As it is now, yeah. Um, and I played all through adulthood, actually, when I was about 35 is when I stopped playing um, and coached quite a bit cool. of soccer. Cool, Kids? Your own kids or, yeah, or I others? Yeah, I started with my own kids, then yeah. we had a travel team, and all the way up until they were just about high school age. Yeah. So civic mindedness has been a part of your career. Uh, did that start early on? Were there things that, you know, grandma had encouraged you to do based on her social consciousness? Did you volunteer and get involved in things or, or did that kind of come later in your life? I, I don't think I formally volunteered mm -hmm. after uh, being with my grandmother. Yeah, um, yeah. It, there, my wife calls me the Boy Scout. Because <laughs> Were you one? I actually was. Good. <laughs> almost, almost made Eagle Scout. Almost made Eagle. Okay. I was one I short did too, of, almost. <laughs> I was one short of Eagle. And it was, that yeah, was a yeah. great time too. Yeah, but I bet. I bet. The, you must have been involved for a few years then. Yeah. But it's always helping people. I mm. love people. And I, I, when I see someone needs something, I'm there. Mm. Um, awesome. So that's why my wife goes, please stay, stay here. Where are you going? And I said, I think they need something. So then I, so I always think about that. What about jobs, volunteers, you know, what type of things kept you busy? And again, we're still kind of in your high school years uh, or even early college. Were there things that you worked at? Did you, were you expected to work to pay for school? Yeah. If I wasn't um, in a sport, work was, hmm. was important mm -hmm. and I liked it. I liked working. Yeah. Um, what kind of work uh, did you do? What were some of the jobs over the summers or, you know, while you, while you were I, in school? When I was going through high school, I, I had two jobs mm. um, because I, I really wanted a car and <laughs> I wanted to go to prom and I wanted to do all those things. Sure. And so um, I worked at Toys R Us. Ah. I, I did that for a while. But cool. my favorite job was a company called Handy Andy, um, which was like a Menards back in the day. Okay, sure. And... What I, uh, there, I, I moved up real quickly. I was about 17 years old and I was the department head of the lumber department. Um, everywhere I've ever went in my job, I got promoted quickly. That's um, great. Leadership or management was something I always wanted to do. Um, I did start a few um, jobs. I built decks and did some landscaping um, on my own where I would just go out and solicit it and uh because of Handy Andy, I learned a lot of how to yeah, do it. Yeah, I was going to say, that was some good skill base there, right? Skill-based yeah. training. Yeah. And then awesome. I just went out and and, and did that. Have uh -huh. you always kind of had that talent, the, the ability to fix things and build things? Has that been a love of yours? I would say, 
Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say so. Again, watching people grow and improve, mm. that's what I see management as, is this, how do I get all the obstacles out of your way so you can be the best person you can be? Awesome. And that's what I think management is a lot of times. And yeah. I learned that when I was yeah. younger. And uh, one of the funnier jobs that I had was, I don't know if you heard Olin Mills, Olin Mills is a photography company. Yeah, right. I remember them. Yeah, back right. in the day. Back in the yeah. day, everybody yeah. had to <laughs> take a picture of Did their family. Did your portraits, right. Yeah, right. sure, sure. And so I was a senior in high school, and I applied for a position hmm. at this company. And I actually made it to manager right away. Hmm. And so I was leading a team of about 15 or 20, making more money than I ever could imagine. Good for you. Um, and what I learned there was I don't need all this money. So I gave it back to my staff and bonuses and they worked harder. And then we got more bonuses and <laughs> we did quite well nice. um, for a long time there. Yeah, that's awesome. So you, you mentioned earlier that it was kind of a foregone conclusion that both you and your sister would go to school. Sister rebelled. You went on ahead. What, what made you choose where you went to school and, uh, you know, kind of the decision on picking a major? What was involved in that? Um, first was I, I had to pay for most of it. Mm. My parents could afford it and, um, it was part of them teaching. They, yeah, yeah. they did help in the long run, but the, there was a lesson of teaching me that I should care about my own education. The value of it. Yeah, yeah. And so it was close cause I had to keep working. I worked sure. full time through college and grad school. And, um, my first major that I chose was accounting. And Mom's influence. <laughs> correct. It's not the best degree to go into when you're dyslexic. Right, right. And did you know by that time that you did have dyslexia? Was yes. it identified? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably mm -hmm. about uh, senior year, I'm sorry, uh, eighth grade to freshman year is when it really was diagnosed and started getting help. But after my first semester of accounting, I realized this is not going to work wasn't for you yeah and it yeah. it also didn't make me happy or satisfied and i took a psychology course and i did very well at it and so then i thought i'm going to keep doing this and that's how things went um I kind of developed your interest. Awesome. And any um, areas of work during your college years that was in that field? In other words, did you either volunteer or get involved in any uh, thing where you were applying that degree or did that come later? That came later. Um, my drive was, if I'm going to be into psychology, I'm going to have my pri a private practice when I graduate. Yeah, got it, got it. And I needed and money. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I needed to make more money than if I was working some of the lower level jobs. Um, so I did business while I was going to college. That's the kind of stuff, sales and- Oh, so you got your degree in business, but then I'm took sorry. psychology classes? No, I, my degree is in psychology, but okay. I worked business. Oh, you worked business, got it, mm -hmm. understood, yeah. And, and what was that first job that you took that was within your profession or your degree achieved out of college? Um, it was helping uh, people that are severe mental health issues, oh, cool. um, bipolar, schizophrenia, yeah. and it was all adults. Yeah. And uh, it, it w I would call it a public practice. We uh, had contracts with different hospitals and different organizations that would send their clients to us and we would help them process through. Right. Awesome. Awesome. And was it with an established um, 
a nonprofit or a, a service center, a hospital? What, what, what was it? It was called Lutheran Family Services. Okay. Got and it. that yeah. was somewhat of a mental health agency. And you came in as someone that was uh, uh, doing the work directly, obviously, with the people that were in that. Um, had that I had an internship yeah. there. Oh, cool. And then they hired me while I was still doing my internship. Nice. And then they kept nice. me on um, after that. And did you move into any leadership responsibilities there, or did that come later in your career? That that came later. I really, okay. in the beginning, was focusing on being the best therapist I can yeah, and how awesome. to get a private practice. Right, right. Um, when and I how got long the private... Yeah, yeah so that, say, how long did it take you to get there? <laughs> I You get lucky sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I can't say that I worked hard to get a private practice because I knew a few people and they helped me. And probably within about a year and a half, at a very young age, I was in private practice. Mm, um, that's awesome. And the key, though, is it is a business and you are your only commodity. And trying to figure out how do I grow a private practice. Now, nobody told me how to do this. I thought mm. you work 40 hours a week. So you see 40 clients a week. And that's not really the case, even though I did that for almost two years, back to back seeing that many clients. Um, I focused on uh, marriage and family. Yeah, that was your, you started an MFT. As I Correct. Recall, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I focused on marriage and family. And what I found as my niche was working with um, lesbian and gay couples mm. um, because, again, back then that was not. Oh yeah, something it wasn't even legal did. at that time, right? I right, mean, what, correct. Were you, were you in Illinois then, or Michigan? I was or? in Illinois, and it was not legal. Uh, it was legal to do the therapy, but it wasn't sure. legal to be married. And once the word got out that I was doing this, my practice was full. Wow. And hmm. as we know now, the secret is people that are gay or not gay have the same marriage problems. <laughs> of course. So yeah. I didn't need to think or study any differently to help them work through whatever they hmm. were doing. Cool. That's great. That's great. And how long did you run your own practice? Probably about three and a half years. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I tapered it off. Um, at some point, uh, the Christmas parties were quite boring. They were just me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really had this craving to be around a system other people more yeah, yeah. other workers and so i took a pay cut two-thirds pay cut and went back into nonprofit to be a therapist in a nonprofit helping at-risk kids gang members and drug dealers and things like that and i'll tell you the funny story is that when i sat down with my first client you know, I'm making real good money and people really want to see me to meeting this gang member who I then uh, got all cocky on him in the sense of you're lucky to even talk to me. <laughs> and he cussed me out. Oh, my gosh. And told me, you know, get out of my face. You're nobody. And I was bit. I was like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of turning you off, it motivated you. It motivated me. I wow. said, I can help these kids and it's not going to be easy yeah. and I'm going to have to prove myself. And I really enjoyed doing that. Good for you. Good for you. Awesome. And in that experience, did you start managing people or did that come a little Very, later in your career? It did. Uh, um, I started managing interns. Okay. Tell me about um, the first time that that started happening then. Was that a year or two into that role? 
or right a away? A little less than a year. Yeah, um, cool. I showed interest right away. I wanted to get involved more in how does the company work. And mm-hmm, so then I was mm-hmm. put in positions to to start supervising and, and learning more. So I ran their internship program. Nice. Um, made a lot of mistakes. Um, of course. Uh, what I learned is what being a therapist is all about. I should have learned for management is listen. Instead, I was trying to teach or tell people, this is how you do it, this is how you do it. And I, and I didn't really take the time to listen to my staff and what mm. they really needed. Yeah. And so that was my journey in that first piece is listening to those interns of what they want out of this experience. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the other lessons from your early management experience, either with interns or then when you went on to manage other therapists? Well, I, w- I would say that one that comes to mind is the higher up that I moved in an organization, mm. the more you have to be careful of what you say and how you say it. Mm. Yeah, um, so true. I wanted to be their friend and mm. um, I wanted to be liked. And when you're equal with somebody, you're the life of the party and everyone enjoys your company. <laughs> and as soon as you become the boss and make the same joke, they're not you don't so get happy. invited to lunch anymore. <laughs> no, you are not. Um, one of the stories I have there is that I was walking through a campus. I was a director of clinical services at the time, and it was raining outside. And there's five or six buildings along the way to get to the building I wanted to go to. And so I just was trying to avoid the rain. So mm. I walk in a building and out a building and in a building. By the time I got to where I was going, I got a couple calls from staff saying, what's wrong? Why are you checking all of these places? You looked upset. And I said, I just wanted to get to the other side. I, <laughs> I was not thinking about anything. And you start realizing that, that people are perceive. watching you. Yeah, right. Wow. It doesn't matter what you think of your authority. Yeah. It's how others yeah. think of your how authority. Yeah, how others see you. Yeah, they see you uh, chagrined and you know bitter. They think it's about them. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, you've had bosses over the years, obviously, prior to ascending to your executive director, CEO at, at Helping Hand. But what, what are some of the best or worst lessons, Bill, that you've learned from previous bosses? And, and don't feel you have to mention any names. <laughs> All right, good. I appreciate that. I've had some good bosses that taught me about people. Mm. Um, and people are not numbers. They're, they're living people with, with lives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think... As again, as I grew in my career, keeping that in mind when I'm looking at budgets and uh, deciding how to save money, really take the time to think about that person and that position of what quality they bring to the organization. Um, confidence. Uh, it's good to listen to other people, but you have to be anchored. You have to know who you are and what you stand for because there's a lot of people trying to sway or influence to their their agenda their advantage yeah. yeah their advantage and and when i follow all those leads you become wishy-washy hmm. and you don't stand for anything and if again if you think i'm not here to be liked i'm here to be respected and make good decisions so they all have jobs for many years um it helps make those decisions easier so uh, I had a great CEO at one point and um, she, I came to her and and I just got promoted to vice president and um, from being a 
senior director. And she said to me, um, I'm complaining about what I can't get done or won't be able to accomplish this thing. And she said, I could make you a director again if you want to, (laughs) or you could start acting like a vice president. Whoa. And as you quickly (laughs) remember those conversations, yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's a good challenge for me. Yeah. Those don't scare me away. And as her and I's relationship grew and she became more of a mentor of mine, what she meant by it was you have to change. Yeah, that's right. You can, what got you to be a director is not going to get you to stay being a a vice president. Yeah, that's true. And as I moved to being a CEO, I learned that very much. And well, I think I know the answer to the first part of this question, but maybe you can elicitate, <laughs> illuminate on the second. Right. You know, you, it sounds like your leadership style has changed over time. How, how would you kind of say it has, you know, taking that experience of director to VP to CEO? What what have been those um, fine tuning or, or perhaps major shifts or major, major pivots in your leadership style? Understanding that just because I know doesn't mean everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And... It's okay to let them learn and come to the same conclusion rather than telling them. Um, I don't have to be the guy that fixes it and knows everything. Um, Being the person to allow other people to express themselves and let the ideas uh, percolate is much more powerful than being the smart guy in the room. Yeah, so true. And uh, patience. Hmm. I still... I have a rock on my desk that says patience <laughs> mm. and I, I am reminded of let, let things happen. Stop trying to force things to happen. Um, you'll, you'll get more out of it. And um, people are the most important part of my career. I am a CEO because of the people that were around me and I'm going to stay that and I'm going to be the best CEO because of the people around me. They have the answers. They have the great ideas. And to me, that's just keeping that in my mind is when I don't know what to do, I go talk to people Hmm. and listen. Awesome. Awesome. Bill, tell us a little bit about Helping Hand in Chicago, you know, how you got there and, and, you know, what's the mission of the organization? Yeah. Helping Hand's been around for about 60 years. Wow. And we help adults and children with intellectual disabilities. Um, We started off as a school. Mm. And 60 years ago, again, that's cutting edge of a bunch of families coming together to say, we want better for our children. Um, We have grown from this little school to almost um, about 300 staff. And uh, we have homes. So we have Mm. homes where adults with disabilities live, uh, about 12 of those. Mm. We have uh, what we call a day program that that teaches people art and music and computers and how to get jobs. They kind of come to the facility and learn. They come to our facility. There's about 250 that do that. Wow. Yeah, that's, I I call it Willy Wonka land because (laughs) you walk in there and you know that that moment when you're in there with all the candy, that's what that place looks like. It's just amazing seeing these people alive with energy, so learning cool. and, and socializing. It's just a beautiful place. And many of them probably never had that opportunity, right? Because they grew up in more structured 
educational environments where they maybe didn't have that type of opportunity. Um, You're exactly right. Opportunity. Yeah, the, yeah. It's not the 1800s that we weren't doing what we could do for people with intellectual disabilities. Sure. It was really the 90s was the last time um, that they they got rid of the dysfunctional institution. Mm, mm. So it wasn't that long ago. And so there, my excitement is there's so much room to still grow because it's still a very young field. That's great. Cool. Um, you know, I mentioned early on that you're the first um, nonprofit CEO we've had on the show, and, and it's just wonderful to, to talk about this because I think the work you're doing is is so fantastic. And, you know, in our planning call, I'd mentioned that I have a daughter that one of my daughters is working with, yes. uh, as she corrects me all the time, people that learn differently, right? Right. And she does that overseas and just loves it. And, you know, she'd been babysitting since she was single digits and has always enjoyed uh, working with children with those types of uh, disabilities, autism, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, et cetera. How, how were you kind of attracted to this opportunity? Were you recruited into it? Was it something you set the sights on? You know, how does one kind of get to become a CEO of a, of a nonprofit of your size? Uh, some of it is luck, right? <laughs> That's um, true in either the public or the private sector. Right. I, I, you know, <laughs> what I tell my staff is, again, the smartest and greatest person doesn't always make it to CEO. That that it's opportunity, it's being at the right place, and definitely knowing who you are and what you want to do. Mm. And majority of my career was working with kids and uh, at-risk kids and and nonprofits. And I then got a call from uh, an organization that I used to work with. And they said, can you come over and create a program that nobody has ever seen before, Mm. change our culture and give us, give our clients a raise or our staff a raise. Mm. And this is moving where I live now is Indiana. And so it was moving from Indiana and working in Indiana to coming to Illinois Mm. uh, again, um, you know, returning back in some sense in a field that I don't know. Mm. (laughs) And so I was nervous about it, Mm. but there was an opportunity to learn from the CEO. He was an excellent marketing person. And um, every job I took prior to becoming a CEO was to teach me how to become a CEO. Mm-hmm. So I chose certain organizations that were really good at things so I can learn that and then take it to a place right. once it's my time. Yeah. So yeah. they they got me into their organization. And the quick story there was I walked into the room of 200 people, adults with disabilities, and I was scared to death. <laughs> my legs were shaking. Um, I never was afraid working with gang members. Not once did I ever get afraid, <laughs> even when the punches were being thrown. Oh but walking goodness. with adults with disability, it got me. They look different. They sound different. They smell different. Everything about them. And they want to, so much to know me and they get in your space. And so I went home that night and I drove about 45 minutes home because a little farther drive. And, right. Got home and my wife said, I've never seen your face like that. What is wrong? <laughs> Ash and, and white. I, yes, it really was. It really was. I said, I made a terrible mistake oh, in my career. Goodness. This is after the first day. It's after the first oh, day. Bill. And oh. my whole career is to to keep growing, right? And sure. I said, I, I made a bad call here. Mm. And, and so what's wrong? And I said, I don't know what to do with these individuals. I don't know how to help them. And she said to me, are they people? Mm. And I said, yeah. And she said, then you'll do just fine. Oh, gosh, great. And I went back the next it. day 
I moved my office from the corporate office and I put it in the main program area. Mm. It was a closet, about four by four with a <laughs> pipe running through it, no windows because there was no other space. And everybody who would come see the vice president over there would say, they obviously don't like you. <laughs> but if I was going to help or change or create, I had to be around had to be there. Yeah. the people that I was serving. And so that was very important. Do you think part of your fear might have been around the fact that you grew up with dyslexia? That's interesting. Hmm. It, that's an interesting. I just wonder to be if there was kind of something said that something you should be a therapist. Unconscious there. Well, I feel like I am sometimes <laughs> in the work that I do with recruiters. You know, I've got to look inside the head of my uh, CEOs and understand what they really want because usually what they say the first time isn't really what it is. What I think of myself <laughs> is I always want to help people. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to just be in a title and get paid. So, Bill, um, you know, private company CEOs talk a lot about company culture. Many of those cultures are founded by the folks that start those companies up. Others are, you know, uh, inherited. But, uh, you know, the, the CEOs seem to think they have an impact. What's it like in the nonprofit sector and where you are today? Do you, do you have that kind of an impact? Do you perceive that you do? Culture is very important. Mm. And, and that's partly why I was pulled out of Indiana to go to Illinois was um, the CEO that met me saw the culture place uh, the, the change in culture that I created in other organizations. Yeah. I think it's the driving force. Mm. You know, it, if you have a culture, especially when you're in a service field, because it's all about people, you know, 80% of my, my budget is staff. Sure. And if the culture's not set appropriately, then you're not providing the best service. Yeah. Yeah. And coming in to a nonprofit, people join a nonprofit and a service nonprofit because they want to make a difference. Right. And the other piece is that um, we're always struggling, right? The nonprofits are always trying to get money to make ends meet because, you know, state doesn't match everything and things like that. Sure. um, So money is on the mind of executives very much in nonprofits. And that doesn't match with the staff that do the job mm. because they're doing it because they're good people. For love for people. Yeah. For love for people. Yeah. And so when management starts talking about saving money, they hear you're taking away and who's going to do this service mm. if you don't do it. Hmm. Hmm. And so making sure the culture's balanced to be able to, it, people say what's more important money or mission. Yeah. And it's both. You can't do it without one or the other. And it's a balance of getting everyone to understand that. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in that, that you know, you hire and bring into your organization? Heart and passion. Mm. Yeah. Um, I know I can teach somebody something and they can learn, but I can't teach the passion, the drive to want to make this a better place, a better world, right. to be creative. You know, I, I've listened to your your podcast and we don't want to hear the the phrase that's the way we've always done it yes that's right and that's right nonprofits do get stuck in that because they think that's okay yeah hmm. i don't accept it hmm. and everywhere i've ever worked in nonprofit that becomes a pet peeve and people around me know that they're not going to say that um, right. right how do we do this better how do we improve the services how do we think completely different I, 
I, what I've seen before in nonprofits is they try to make the best VCR they could ever make, <laughs> not realizing it's time to move on to something else. <laughs> yeah, time to move on to Netflix. <laughs> Netflix, right. <laughs> and that's what we have, nonprofits have to get out yeah. of it. It's, yeah. It doesn't mean you keep improving what you have. Sometimes you've got to step completely in a different direction. Yeah. Fantastic. Bill Dwyer, CEO of Helping Hands Chicago, you've, you've been terrific with your time. This has been so educational. I'd love to hear about your background. We always like to end the podcast, though, with one last question, and, and particularly for those in our audience, and I'm sure there are many that maybe are considering a career in nonprofit work and perhaps want to be an ED or a, or a CEO like yourself someday. What kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who's got their eyes on you know, the corner office of a nonprofit down the road? You make sure your priorities are straight. Yeah. It's not an easy job. It's a lifestyle. You don't work for an organization anymore. You are the organization. Hmm. And that's hard to do. And I've made sacrifices in other parts of my life because this is important. And my family was behind me to do that. And so don't rush to the top without enjoying every moment Hmm. that you're going through. One of the things I've heard many of my uh, mentees and things say is I'm tired of middle management. I want to get into Mm -hmm. upper management. CEO is in a nonprofit is the ultimate middle manager. Mm. I have a board that I have to talk to and I have staff. Middle management is important. Make sure you ace how to be a good middle manager and you'll be a really good CEO. Fantastic. Bill, once again, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you very much, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.